have them singing for us today. Young people, you can be dismissed at this time for Children's Church. All the rest of you, if you would, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. I'm going to move some of these. I kind of feel like I'm at a press conference with all these microphones around. All right, Luke chapter 9. Last Sunday, I was privileged to be preaching in a church down in Texas, and uh, in the uh, Corpus Christi area, <coughs> and I don't ever want to hear anybody here complain about the heat. Amen. South Dakota, amen? Um, I found out what heat was last week, and so grateful to be back here where it's uh, livable, you know, so praise the Lord for that. Uh, today we look at a brief encounter Jesus had with three different men. Now, a few verses earlier than what the text will read, actually it's found in chapter 9, verse 51, the Bible says that Jesus steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, that's an interesting thing if you think about it, because what was waiting for Jesus at Jerusalem? He was going to be arrested, falsely accused. He's going to be scourged. And uh, he was going to be spat upon. Not only that, all of this would begin by betrayal of one of his own men. And then ultimately he would be crucified. But the Bible says he was still determined to go. Praise the Lord for that. Hallelujah for, for what that meant, meant for us. Instead of running away, he set his face in obedience to the will of God. Now I want you to keep that kind of as a baseline today. As we talk about commitment and the men that he met and how they can apply to us. But I want you to remember, at the core of it, Jesus was fully committed to do what God wanted him to do and to be our sin, uh, pay our sin debt for us. Remember the commitment of Jesus as you look at your own commitment and the commitment of these we'll see today in this text. As he walked along, uh, Jesus met three men. Let's read today, starting at verse number 57. Luke chapter 9, verse 57. And it came to pass that as they were in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And he said unto another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And another said, also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid farewell, which are at home at my house. Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow, looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. I want to preach today for a few minutes on reluctant volunteers. Father, I pray you'd help us in the next few moments we have together here. I pray you'd help us to not be distracted, but to focus in what your word has for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Each man wanted to follow him. Yet each had a reservation, an excuse. They wanted to be disciples, but they were not quite ready yet to pay the price. As we look at these three men, we find three excuses, we find three reasons that are surprisingly relevant in our day and age today if we break these down. So I want to look at that, uh, just at each person and their response to Jesus. In the state of Wyoming, you find a place called Bridger Wilderness Area. I've never been there before. But the idea is to go there, and it is, there is no amenities there. This is wilderness living. And you can go there, it's a park, you can go there and be, uh, basically, uh, live like they would have lived before there was any kind of human creature comforts. 
And so when you, after you visit the park, you're encouraged to hand or to fill out and hand in a comment card. And it's interesting some of the comments this wilderness place gets. Let me read you a couple. There are too many bugs and spiders and spider webs. Please spray the forest to get rid of these pests. Here's another one. Chair lifts need to be installed so we can get to the natural views without having to walk to them. And then another, a small, actually this requires a voice. A small deer came into my camp and stole a jar of pickles. Can I get reimbursed? There's a lot of people that visit this park that don't understand the idea of a genuine wilderness experience. They want a wilderness experience, follow me now, as long as it's convenient and comfortable. A lot of Christians live their lives that way. A lot of Christians uh, are, are, will go to church when it's convenient, will do right when it's convenient, will serve when it's convenient, when it's comfortable, but we don't really make any sacrifices for God. The call of Christ in the 21st century is the same as it was 2,000 years ago. Follow me. No conditions. No excuses. No restriction. And look at today, the first man he talked to today really is all about counting the cost. As he's walking down the road, this man said to him, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. Now, we could call this man the enthusiastic disciple. Now, we don't know how old it was, uh, how old he was, but as you look at him running up and talking to Jesus that way, I don't know about you, but it just has all the, the spark of youth about this guy. I think he was a young man. In fact, the Bible tells us in Matthew 8, he was a scribe, he was educated, he would have been upper middle class. Evidently, this man is prepared to give up some things to follow Jesus, to be his disciple. Maybe he had visions of a soon coming kingdom. A lot of people did. That's really what the triumphal entry in Jerusalem was all about here about this time. So he maybe had that kind of visions and he thought about the positions and prosperity, the power to be had in this kingdom. Uh, best to sign up now. Get in on the ground floor. Uh, but he had to learn something and Jesus talked to him about this. Uh, poverty was in Jesus' future, not promotion. Uh, there was crucifixion in Jesus' future, not coronation. And so we have to understand that it was a good place, it was a good thing this man said, it's a good proposal he made. I'll follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And I like that attitude. There's too many people in our churches today that stay on the sideline instead of jumping into the fray for Christ. People want to see how things will go before they commit themselves. Well, God bless this young man who jumped up volunteered and said, hey, wherever you go, I'll follow you. Hey, this is needed today, isn't it? This kind of attitude. You know, you're like the turtle. You'll only go forward by sticking your neck out. And sometimes you got to do that. This man seems to be willing to do that. And I say this with all reverence and respect to the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, but if Jesus were a pastor today, brother, I don't think his church would grow very fast. Have you ever thought of that? You ever see how he treats people that, come to him. Uh, here's a young man that runs up to him. And, and Jesus is so different than many church leaders today. It, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. If someone came up to me and said that, I would be, well, come on. We got VBS in a couple of weeks. We'll put you to work somewhere, amen. We got stuff for you to do. People come to Jesus. I want in. And he always seems to Hell, uh, set them back on their heels a bit. To this man, he says, count the cost. To the young ruler, he says, sell all you have. 
To the woman in Matthew 15, he said, It is not meat to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. To the multitude in Luke 14, he said, If any man come to me and hate not his father and his mother and his wife and his children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now this is some harsh talk by Jesus. Jesus was never about building crowds. However, he was absolutely about inspiring people to make commitments for him and to be serious about serving God. Jesus' love is not a pampering love. It is a perfecting love. Uh, his, it's not a love motivated by man's will, but by the Father's plan. Let's remember that when we see how Jesus deals with people. In the context of Jesus' reply here, I think we see the man's motivation. I, I, I have to think he's watching Jesus from afar, hearing about him everywhere. This is the greatest group around. I mean, they're, on, uh, they're trending on Twitter. They're all the, the rage on social media. They're the thing that people are talking about on the news. Everybody is talking about the things that Jesus is doing. And I want in on this, he's thinking. He's amazed by the miracles. He loved it when he heard about Jesus walking on the water. He was astonished about the feeding of the 5,000. I mean, who wouldn't want to follow a man who's able to raise the dead? And so he wants a part of this. He's sincere, I believe, in his desire, but Jesus advises him to count the cost. Look at verse number 58. This is literally true, Jesus' words here, when he said, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Jesus owned nothing but the clothes on his back. He never owned a home. He never had a bank account. He never had a place to call his own. I mean, he just, uh, he was dependent on other people for those things. I know this is going to come to a shock to our millennials in the audience today, but he didn't have a cell phone. And he survived. That's something? Shocking. How's that even possible? I saw a picture the other day of a, uh, a mom's cell phone and a child's cell phone are in the museum, and there's a picture on the wall of an old-fashioned wall phone. Remember those that were connected? And the mom is saying to the child cell phone, that's right, dear, our ancestors had tails. Uh, a lot of change since we've been children. But uh, several years ago, I was on one of my uh, dad-daughter dates, and we're on the way back from uh, Sioux Falls, and, and it's, it's one of those evenings where it's just absolutely gorgeous out to the west, like only as you see in South Dakota. And, and uh, she's on her cell phone. I said, oh, Get off your phone. You got to look at look at this beautiful nature here, and you're missing all of it because you're looking at your phone. You know what she did? She puts the camera on her phone, and she starts viewing the uh, sky through her phone. And says, "You're right, Dad. I should be more observant about nature." Uh, we're all about modern conveniences. Jesus didn't have any modern conveniences. I mean, he was he lived. It, Jesus had none of the things we take for granted. He lived day to day, trusting God to provide his needs. He grew up in poverty. He never really rose above it during his entire life, his earthly life. He depended on the generosity of his followers for everything he had. Now, he's telling this man, you, know, you better know what you're asking for. You better count the cost. He's not rejecting him. He's simply challenging his enthusiasm with the instruction to count the cost. Following me, you're not going to have any guarantee of physical benefits. You'll get up every day not knowing where you'll get your next meal. We're not going to have any fair-weather Christians on our team, is what Jesus is saying. Now, again, we 
we are, look at things a little differently sometimes as we baby people along, but Jesus, he he's not, didn't have any place here for fair-weather Christians. If you follow me, you're going to give up all your earthly security. Now, are you in or out? Listen to the words of Paul, 1 Corinthians 4.11. Even unto this present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place and labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we suffer it, being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and are the off-scouring of all things unto this day. We're the scum of the earth, that's what he's saying there, as Christians. It's been that way since the beginning. The Bible tells us in John 15, 18, if the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. I think we in America sometimes take our prosperity as a kind of spiritual birthright. If, as if we deserve to live like this because of who we are and where we are. And, and I'm grateful for all that we have, the freedoms and the prosperity that we have. Don't get me wrong, I'm grateful for those things. But our problem is that we've become altogether too comfortable where we are. We're citizens of heaven, friend. We're not citizens of earth. We are pilgrims just passing through. I heard one preacher uh, was talking about the, the patriarchs. You had Abraham, Isaac, you had Jacob. And uh, as they, as they uh, one of the things that were common among them is that they lived in tents. They were sojourners. They were pilgrims just passing through. Hebrews chapter 11 says that they had, they had an eye, their eye on a better city, something not made by human hands, made by God himself. They lived in tents. And one of the problems is that we sink roots. And there's a, in that area of the patriarchs, do you remember one person that gave up his tent for a house? His name was Lot, and he got into a lot of trouble for it. And so we need to remember that we are just passing through. We should never feel at home here. Uh, Corey Ten Boom said, A true disciple has shallow tent pegs. Why? Because we're moving on in the morning. Amen. And so we need to remember that we are just pilgrims passing through in this world. Don't pity Jesus for having no place to lay his head. Pity the man who's so chained to material things he forfeits his eternal rest. Don't pity Jesus for sleeping by a campfire. Pity the man who rejects Christ and spends eternity in the fires of hell. Don't pity the disciples who are called the filth of the world. Pity those enslaved to the fate of the world. Let's remember, it is uh, the rewards are way worth it to follow Jesus Christ, but we better count the cost when we do and not get discouraged when we fall, run into the slightest difficulty. There's a story of a man who walked into the photography studio with a framed picture of his girlfriend. He wanted a picture duplicated, which involved removing it from the frame. And so the studio owner uh, is doing this, and he notices the inscription on the back of the photograph. I'll read it to you. Dearest Tom, I love you with all my heart. I love you more and more every day. I will love you forever and ever. I am yours for all eternity. Love, Helen. That's sweet. P.S. If we ever break up, I want this picture back. Isn't that our commitment sometimes? I'll follow you, Lord. I'll do whatever you ask, Jesus, until there's this hint of trouble, problems, conflict, and we just quit. Follow me. Jesus absolutely wanted this man to follow him. Count the cost. And that was the message there to the enthusiastic disciple. Then we see another man 
Jesus is talking to here. Uh, verse 59. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Here we see the reluctant disciple. And the message to him is no delays. Unlike the first man who volunteered, Jesus calls this one out. Now, again, speculation. I don't know the situation. The Bible doesn't tell us. But I wonder if maybe this wasn't somebody who uh, was a regular to Jesus' meetings or somebody Jesus had seen before. And uh, Jesus basically forced him to declare himself here. Now, his answer seems reasonable. We all understand the need to properly take care of our parents and in the end bury them. Uh, there are some positives here. He's sincere. He's evidently more thoughtful than the first man was who was caught up in the excitement of the moment. You could even say this guy was counting the cost. Uh, his statement, let me go and bury my father. Now we know from Old Testament history that the Jews took very seriously the responsibility of burying the dead. In fact, if a son properly buried his father, it excused him from certain religious duties during that time. In 1 Timothy 5, verse 8, the Bible says if a man doesn't take care of his own family, he's worse than an infidel. Jesus is not attempting to pit this man against his own family. He does, however, demand an allegiance that exceeds all other obligations, even family. Order me a pizza with pepperoni. Okay, good. <laughs> Likely, the father was still alive probably elderly. The son feels the need here to take care of his father until death and, of course, care for his estate after. At any rate, he's making excuses. Now, delays in following Christ uh, are, are a dangerous, dangerous thing if we delay. Jesus is teaching this man not to hate his family, but the priorities of what they're talking about. The call to follow, follow me. And then look at the condition for the following. Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. The problem here is not burying our relatives. The problem here is the word, words, me first. Uh, you will never make a good follower of Christ if you insist on me first instead of Christ first. What does the Bible say, Matthew 6, 33? But seek ye first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness, or, or and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And then look at the command for the following. Again, we see seemingly a harsh response by Christ. Let the dead bury their dead. That sounds almost rude. What could it mean? How can dead people bury dead people? I think the answer here is pretty obvious. Jesus has basically already said before that those not those are not followers of Christ, Paul talks about this too, are spiritually dead, separated from God. Let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. The Affairs of this world, we have to remember, are mundane compared to the importance of the gospel. And it is by the preaching of the gospel that the lost are saved, the spiritually dead are raised to life. And so I believe what he's talking about here is all about priority. The priority in the command, let the dead bury their dead. Uh, who comes first in your life, Christ or the cemetery? Uh, Christ is not against funerals. He's not against taking time to bury somebody. What he is, is here doing here, I believe, is emphasizing priority. Christ's work must take precedence over the affairs of the world. And friends, we are involved in a wonderful work. We really are. If you take a part in getting, uh, giving to missions, 
handing out gospel tracts, visitation, bringing people to church. I had several this morning here today are here because somebody invited you, somebody brought you. What a blessing that is. And if you're a part of this is a wonderful work to be a part of. In a sense, Jesus is asking, would you rather bury the dead or raise the dead? Hey, we got a great work going on here. Where do you want to be involved in? Priorities. Why do so-called Christians not go to church? Priorities. Why do people... Uh, why are people willing to put money in a slot machine but not in an offering plate? Priorities. Why do Christians talk about sports and politics and argue about every other thing under the sun but they won't talk about Christ? Priorities. Why do parents run all over God's creation taking their kids to soccer practice but they won't bring them to church? Priorities. Where are your priorities this morning? Look, Jesus isn't against taking time for your family and taking care of personal things. Of course not. We have to put this in balance. But he is drilling home to this young man, you better have your priorities right. We must recognize our family should never be an excuse for us not to serve God. I have a wonderful wife, a blessing and gift to my ministry. I wouldn't want to do it without her. I have eight children and four grandchildren I love dearly. But I must never set them before God. That would create an idol. We're always to keep things in their proper place. Understanding the priority of God's work prevents delay. You simply can't say as a teenager, well, hey, I tell you what, once I become an adult, I'm going to serve God. You can't say as a parent, you know, everything's so busy right now. Once the kids are raised, not at the house, I'm going to have more time. I'm going to serve God. Don't delay. Excuses of delay are unacceptable if you're a disciple of Christ. By the way, there's nothing as heart-hardening as delay. You delay, and you're going to delay more, and delay more, and delay more, until you just won't get the job done at all. Verse number 60. Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. There's an urgency inherent in these words. When Christ calls, we must not delay. Can I tell you today, the devil's favorite word is not a curse word. The devil's favorite word is tomorrow. Delay. Put it off. One delay, no matter how well-intentioned, leads to another and another, and another, until you end up not doing what you're supposed to do at all. Delay is my sin. It brings me only sorrow. I know that I should stop it. In fact, I will tomorrow. <laughs> Don't wait to live out God's purpose for your life. Jesus was not against treating parents with honor at all. But he was against it becoming an excuse from doing what we're supposed to be doing. So to the enthusiastic disciple, Jesus said, Count the cost. To, to the reluctant disciple, Jesus said, no delay. And then finally, we see the third man, and we see no turning back. But another, verse 61, also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. Now, there's a bit of a contradiction if you think about calling somebody a divided disciple. If you're a disciple, you're not divided. If you're divided, you're not a disciple. Uh, there's also a contradiction in what he says. He said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell. Can I tell you, you cannot use those two words in the same sentence. Lord, but. He's either Lord, and you got no buts, or you have buts, and he's not Lord. You can't say both. You can't say, Lord, I, you're in charge of my life, but. I'm going to do this, or I have to do this first. This is a contradiction in terms. Now, if he's really Lord of your life, then you'll obey 
completely. If you want exceptions in your life, don't call him Lord. It's a contradiction. If we use the example of the military for these three guys, we could say the first man was a volunteer, the second was a draftee, and then the third man here is a weekend warrior. He's ready to serve the Lord, ready to do something for God, but he wants to tie up some loose ends at home first. And his request also sounds reasonable. All he wants to do is go home and say goodbye to his parents, his friends. Maybe they'll throw him a going-away party and have a nice time uh, to uh, a last big bash. So why can't he go home and bid his family goodbye? Is it wrong to say goodbye in and of itself? In 1 Kings 19, Elijah called Elisha. Remember what Elisha's request was? Go home and say goodbye. Elijah granted it. Why is it okay for Elisha to do it, but not this man here? Now, I don't, there's probably many speculative answers to this, but maybe Jesus knew this man. Maybe he knew he was easily influenced and his family would talk him out of his decision. Uh, add to that, Jesus wanted to teach here the extreme importance of his message. It cannot wait. Eternity depended on it. Hesitation and indecision disqualifies people from service. There is no more miserable human being than one in whom nothing is habitual but indecision. How many and how often are, are we distracted by all things that take us from our duty? If we're going to serve Jesus Christ, we cannot be turned aside by all kinds of diversions. Verse 62, look what Jesus' response was. No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. The past few years, I've taken on a new hobby. Teaching teenagers to drive. It's a wonderful thing. It's a great way to bond with your teen. Also a great way to want to learn how to want to kill them, you know, at times. Uh, give you, it gives you ulcers, dangers of heart attacks, all those things. But as we teach, uh, as I teach... My teenagers, by the way, uh, pray for Barbara. She has a test tomorrow to take to get her license. She wants everybody to know that so you can all ask. And if it doesn't happen, it's going to be an embarrassing day tomorrow. So, All right. Uh, but uh, as we teach people how to drive, one thing that's really important is that rear view mirror, isn't it? Check your rear view mirror. Don't merge into traffic. Don't back up without looking your rear view mirror, always looking back, making sure. But when it comes to being a Christian... We've got an important call, and when there's a mission greater than any earthly reward, in our life, rip off the rearview mirror. Don't constantly keep looking back. You know, this is true in so many different ways. It was true in Joseph's life. Remember when he had all the things Joseph went through and he had two boys? Remember what they were named? They were named the first one was named, who can tell me? What was the first one named? Manasseh was the first one. The second one was named Ephraim. Ephraim means fruitful. We all want to be fruitful, right? Well, before he could have a fruitful, he had to have a Manasseh, and Manasseh means forgetful. Because Joseph had to come a point in his life where I've got to, if I want to be fruitful, if I want to be successful, if I want to be, do something for God, if I want my life to work out, if I want to be fruitful, I have got to put aside, forget a few things in my life. The same thing happened to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, after he got saved, can you imagine what it would be like for the Apostle Paul to be preaching and, and here's a family that he imprisoned their parents and here's somebody that's 
maybe uh, still bears the scars of a beating that he gave them, and, and uh, there's people that uh, affected by his prior life. came a time in Paul's life where he said, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forth to those things which are before. Rip off the rearview mirror. We're not looking back, and that's what Jesus said here. No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. You've got an important call as a child of God. You've got an important mission greater than any earthly mission, plow forward. There's a fascinating episode in the life of Ezekiel. I read this, and it, every time I read or think about this, I just it kind of makes my mind... But also the word of the Lord, Ezekiel 24, 15. Also the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, behold, I take away from thee the desire of thine eyes with a stroke. Yet neither shalt thou mourn nor weep, neither shall thy tears run down, by the way, what he's talking about is his wife. He's going to take his wife away. Your wife's going to die. You're not going to cry. You're not going to weep. Neither shall thy tears run down. Forbear to cry. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind the tire of thine head upon thee. Put on thy shoes upon thy feet. Cover not thy lips. Eat not the bread of men. So I spake unto the people in the morning, and at even my wife died, and I did in the morning as I was commanded. Think about that. Here's a preacher. His wife dies. God said, I don't want you to cry about it. I don't want you to mourn. I want you to get up in the morning, and I want you to preach. I want you to deliver the word as I will have you. That's, that's hard, okay? There's some things in the Bible we see like that, and we think, wow, that's hardcore right there. And we're, we're being reminded here the ultimate priority of following God and following the gospel. Ezekiel's bringing the gospel. In this context, he's showing the people that God was angry at their sin. That was his, uh, that was his message specifically. And for Ezekiel, that mission is of greater importance than mourning the death of his wife. Now, in a time of grace that we live in, we don't necessarily, uh, God doesn't put the same demands on everybody, but I think we could apply this and say, hey, should you really just serve God when it's convenient? Should you just do right and go to church when there's nothing else to do or when it just seems the easy thing to do, or should you sacrifice a little bit once in a while? Let me ask you a question. When is the last time you sacrificed anything for God? be it financial, be it time. I'm not talking about just the easy stuff. I'm not talking about giving God the leftovers. I'm talking about sacrificing something. When it costs... Remember what David said when he was sacrificing to God? And forget where it's found in the Old Testament. But he says, I will not offer God that which costs me nothing. When's the last time you sacrificed something for God? We're not a sacrificing people in the good old U.S. of A., are we? We are comfortable. And it's hard sometimes... Uh, for us to read a story like this and think, wow, that's very demanding of God. But three applications we can take from these three men who met Jesus on the road. Following Jesus is more important than personal comfort. Following Jesus is more important than family obligations. Following Jesus is more important than the approval of others. All three of these men called Jesus Lord, but none of them did what he wanted them to do. Luke 6, 46, and why call you me Lord, Lord, 
and do not the things which I say. The first man needed to deny himself. The second man was concerned about the wrong funeral. <laughs> you know what he should be concerned about? Should have taken up his cross, died to self, and obeyed the will of God. That's what Jesus asked to do, uh, asked all his followers to do. The third man had his eyes in the wrong direction and could not follow Christ. I wonder how many of us that's true in our lives. That's your situation. You know it. God knows it. In your life, you're plowing crooked rows. No man is fit uh, put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit to the kingdom of God. Why? Because what's going to happen? Now, albeit we plow a little differently than he's talking about in that verse. They didn't have GPS-powered tractors when they wrote this verse here. So you're talking about literally putting your hand to the plow. Uh, anybody ever plowed like that? I haven't. I've seen it done. But uh, pulled by a horse, mule, ox, whatever, but you're putting your hand to the plow. Now imagine trying to do a straight row while you're looking back. You can't. That's what Jesus is saying. You've got to put your focus on the right thing. As I've used this before, but being raised, ha having been raised Amish when I was growing up, we had one-horse-powered vehicles. Uh, very good for the environment, uh, and uh, didn't want to step in the exhaust, but we had we had good environment. Anyway, we had horses, and we put we put blinders on those horses, and the reason was so that their attention is not distracted all different directions, so that they're looking just one directions. And listen, we need that in our life as well. We need spiritual blinders sometimes. Focus on. That's why Jesus said, "Look, if your eyes are going to be here and." and you're looking over here, and you're looking back, you're not going to plow a straight row. Keep your eyes forward. No man looking back. It's, again, it's about priorities. You can read this story, and you think, wow, Jesus is against families, he's against all these. Not at all. We're talking about priorities here. Where are your priorities today? How serious are you about putting God first in your life? Or is it, what else? But listen, if your family comes before God, that is an idol, friend. That's an idol. God has to be first in our life. We have to put Him first. That the conditions for discipleship are given in Luke 9.23. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. These three men failed to meet those qualifications. No wonder the laborers are few. Because we still have these problems today. We still deal with the same thing. Following Jesus is the most important thing in your life. It is not an emotional spur-of-the-moment decision like man number one. It is not a decision that can be postponed until later like man number two. It is not a phase we go through while we keep our options open like man number three. Following Jesus means we sign away the rights to our own life. We let Him be the captain of our ship. Ever seen that? Sign, God is my co-pilot. If God is your co-pilot, you're in the wrong seat, friend. All right, He needs to be in charge. He needs to be your pilot. And let, by the way, you, sometimes we hear this on the human level. We think, oh man, so to be a good Christian, I've got to be miserable. No, if God's in control of your life, He'll give you a better life than you could ever dream up on your own. Oh my goodness, don't ever think that Living for God is second rate, amen? It's the greatest thing in the world to be a child of God and be in His will. Just make Him that priority. Sign on the bottom line and let Him fill in the details. It means Jesus first. 
No conditions. No delays. No buts. No excuses. God help us follow Christ at any cost. Without delay. No turning back. Wherever he leads. Let's have every head bowed. Every eye closed. Let me ask you today, friend. How about you? Maybe you fall into the category of one of these three men. Maybe we found you as we go throughout the passage. Maybe the Lord spoke to you about something entirely different. However he spoke to you today, would you respond to his call? As you stand along with me, eyes closed, heads bowed, she's going to begin to play. If the Lord spoke to your heart, respond today. Maybe it's time for someone to say, Lord, I will follow without any qualifications. If you've been living your life with, uh, I'll follow him when this...